Whatever Hawkins's feelings at that moment, he and his men had to move quickly. Shot was still falling fast around his new flagship, the Minion, as he signalled Drake and the Judith to join him out of range. As they sailed into the gathering dusk, the sound of gunshots died away, while the burning fireship lit up the western sky behind them. No other Spaniards followed them. They had clearly had enough of battle with Hawkins. And so, finally out of sight of San Juan de Ulua, Hawkins and Drake were able to drop anchor in the dark and assess their losses. Hawkins had begun the day with six ships. He now had two. Of his three hundred men, he had lost more than a third. It was true that he had given nearly as well as he had gotten, and sent the Spaniards' two proud flagships to the bottom. He had escaped the trap they had elaborately set for him, including the fireship. But escape had cost him dearly, in blood, ships, and, thinking of the silver he had been forced to abandon on the Jesus, treasure. Yet no grief at his losses could equal the rage he felt at having been deceived and betrayed. The Spaniards had given their word, and then played him false. Somehow, some way, he would make them pay. In the morning, he had one more nasty shock. The Judith was gone. A few hours before dawn, Drake had raised anchor and set sail, taking with him the bulk of the gold and silver his cousin had transferred to him, and leaving Hawkins and his overloaded, undersupplied ship to their fate. A heartless and selfish move, no doubt, but also a clear-eyed one. The Judith, escorting the wounded and clumsy minion, might make it home to England. The Judith alone almost certainly would. Here, in 1568, on his first command, Francis Drake revealed himself as he would be for the rest of his career, a smart, bold, ruthless bastard. Hawkins may have cursed Drake's name and his own bad luck, but he also knew that whatever had befallen him and his men up to this point, worse was almost certainly going to come. No coastline, port or island in the Caribbean was now safe. The Minion would have to sail directly for Europe without stopping for supplies, even though she was woefully short of food and water. When they learned this, Almost half his crew, including Job Hartop, told him they wanted to be left behind on the coast to take their chances with the Spanish or the natives, rather than live on boiled leather on the voyage home. Hawkins didn't mind. It lessened the number of men he would have to feed, and contemplating the coming trip, he could hardly blame them. The Atlantic crossing took three months. Hawkins had to deal with starvation, storms, and mutiny. His men ate every living thing they could find on the ship, pigs, dogs, rats, and parrots, until they got down to chewing on pieces of oxide and leather gloves. Halfway through, the dread of every long-distance ocean voyager struck. Scurvy. Men's gums bled, their teeth fell out, and their legs and fingers turned black. Finally, the Minion made landfall in northwest Spain. Hawkins entered the port of Vigo to beg for food before all his men died. A 
Spanish eyewitness caught sight of him there, gaunt and haggard, but with the same crimson velvet breeches and a scarlet leather jacket trimmed with silver braid, and the same air of self-assured command. The minion left Vigo on January the 20th, 1569, and reached Plymouth Sound on January the 25th. Of the 100 men he sailed from America with, there were 15 survivors. When he came ashore, he learned that Drake and the Judith had arrived in Plymouth three days earlier. But Hawkins was too preoccupied for recriminations. For one thing, there was still business to be done. Even after all that they had been through, Hawkins was able to send to his partners in London more than 25,000 golden tapes.